Welcome to Untangling Christianity. On this show, John and Greg attempt to diffuse destructive ideologies, unsnarl confused ideas, consider love and truth in Christianity. I'm John Polstra. And I'm Greg Monte. Today we're picking up where we left off. Last time we were looking at an article from the Biola magazine titled, Young People Are Indeed Leaving the Church. Subtitle, and new research tells us how to turn it around. That article was by Craig Hazen and Larry Barnett. This week I thought a nice, I don't know if you call it a compliment or... Uh, maybe a next place to go. So when we discussed mm. that article, one of the components I felt was missing was the experiential component of mm. it's not just all in your head and the contention of this article, which ultimately, but we both found pretty unsatisfying was that if you can address the intellectual doubts, then mm -hmm. everything's good. People will stay in church. They'll still be Christians. They'll know God. Everything turns out well. And this other article that was brought to us by Stephanie in the Facebook group, which I thought was pretty interesting, it's called How Becoming More Secular Brought Me Closer to Jesus. And this is by Allison Lynch, and it's found mm -hmm. at patheos.com. We'll have links to both of those articles in the notes and whatever else we discussed today. So the interesting part, so this article by Allison Lynch is basically chronicles her journey from evangelical Christian, went to Gordon College, incidentally the president of Biola, I think was previously the president at Gordon or had some very strong associations with Gordon. And a lot of what she talks about here from her evangelical background is extremely familiar to me. And she ends up calling BS We'll just kind of use that as our, I don't want to bleep a hundred times in this episode. So she, <laughs> at a certain point in the article, she kind of lays out all this evangelical stuff and then she calls BS on it. What was interesting, I guess, as I read this article is I thought, if you took this article on apologetics in the Biola magazine, that's, you know, the contention there is if you can address serious intellectual doubts, then things turn out well. With that in mind, in reading this article... I don't see how simply addressing her intellectual doubts, of which there are many here, would mm -hmm. have really gotten, would have really solved her problem. Mm -hmm. Now, granted, she doesn't, she's contending that she doesn't have a problem anymore and that she's kind of moved on and left this all behind. The part I want to focus on is the contention that intellectual, that addressing intellectual doubts will fix things. Maybe it fixes some things, but again, I don't really feel like it would have helped. Allison, what do, you, what do you think? Well, I think you make some good points. Um, you know, I, I go back to, so the article in Biola Magazine, uh, uh, Craig Hazen, I guess, is really kind of almost interviewing or pulling from the information that uh, Larry Barnett is offering. And when you go to Larry Barnett's site, this uh Next Gen, projectnextgen.org, um, if you look under their research, so it's the, the fourth tab along at the top, and there are three, you know, options to choose from. If you choose Next Gen Research, that's what it's called, and you can see 
that, and I know we talked about this last time, these six conclusions that David Kinnaman and Allie Hawkins at Barna Research drew um, to explain the exodus, I'm just actually reading from it, to explain the exodus of young adults from Christianity in You Lost Me. I guess You Lost Me as a study. And I'll read this out again. Here they reported six areas of disconnection between young adults and the church. Young adults describe the church as, and here, this is a, this is a quotation, one, overprotective, two, shallow, three, anti-science, four, repressive, five, exclusive, and six, doubtless. And that's the end of the quotation, but after the doubtless, there's, there's a, a, an explanation of what they mean by that. What they mean is unfriendly to those with doubts. Um, and if you go in that same tab, the research tab on the projectnextgen.org, right to the next one, it's key findings. And it's really interesting to me that on the one hand, their research was based on something that Barna did, and they note that it was a small sample. But they've only taken one thing, one piece of this Barna research. Now, I'm not saying that this research done by David Kinnaman and Ali Hawkins of Barna Research is necessarily good or bad. I'm simply saying that it's interesting to me that this group of people, this, or this, as far as I know, it's only one person uh, who is part of this uh, next-gen project, uh, Larry Barnett. But Larry Barnett has latched on to or seen fit only to focus on one notion within these this set of notions, right? Uh, and that is that, that there are doubts in the church. And in fact, it's interesting because the, the critique isn't that doubts are a problem in the church. The critique is the church is unfriendly to those with doubts. And the conclusion that Barna, or that, uh, pardon me, Larry Barnett has drawn and if you look uh, uh, to, to the key findings section of the website, again, under the research tab, number two, doubts are spiritually harmful. Having specific doubts about Christianity made it much more likely that individuals would reject or abandon Christianity. And doubt produced much lower levels of spiritual health as assessed through profession of faith, worship attendance, Bible reading, prayer frequency, and other indices of spiritual health. Well, I think lack of doubt also could be lack of intellectual capacity. Lack of people actually thinking about things. It could be, lack of doubt could be equated with fear. Because if I doubt, I don't have the answers. And if I don't have the answers, I've got nothing. So I think your point is, is, is dead on that that article uh, by Allison uh, Lynch, uh, what she's expressing there is far more than, yeah, there are some intellectual pieces missing. There's a whole mentality, a whole sort of way of engaging with the world that is at odds with, you know, I, I love your term, John, when you would often talk about, I need this to reconcile with my lived existence. I need it to reconcile with lived. You it's know, my old accounting background life. there. Why not? <laughs> Seriously, like, why do we not think about things that way? Why is this not standard practice for Christians to say, well, okay, this doesn't make sense based on what, I'm, what I've experienced over here, what I've heard over here. Now, it, it would be unfair to say, well, I'll question the Bible, but I won't question my experience, right? I think question both. 
make sure that if you are basing your criticism of of a particular uh, Christian belief or, or uh, of of the Bible generally on lived experience or information you've gathered, hopefully that information is accurate, right? Because you get nowhere. In fact, you're worse off if you're basing your criticisms on information that itself is questionable. But I think the whole the whole enterprise, like the whole kind of orientation here is uh, in the Biola article and in, 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 uh, from what I've seen in, in, in uh, Barnett's a next gen project sort of the emphasis there is yeah it is in your head it is about proper information it's about knowing the right stuff or knowing stuff applying the right stuff in the right way and then i'm being a little generous there maybe in that second one right maybe he's going to go there i haven't read through everything he's got maybe he's going to say that but i don't i still even i don't even think it's that Right, I think there's much more involved. What were you thinking? What are the missing pieces? Well, the, the, I guess the other missing piece here is I was just rereading some of this, and maybe I'm contradicting myself, but I it seems like there's a it seems like there's another missing piece here, and I don't know if it's experience or if it's behavioral conformity, but that also seems to be kind of a strong push to Allison's article here. So she talks about. Uh, later in life, when I graduated from Gordon College, I'm quoting now, a private Christian school in Massachusetts, I was on fire again for God and ready to reclaim my life as a real Christian. I was merely lukewarm in college, and it was time to take Jesus seriously since he died for me and I owed him. Sound familiar? I'm adding that. I broke up with my fiance, got baptized again, quote, just in case, started going to a new church and abstained from non-Christian behavior the regular people of the world were so into. Life felt fresh, my soul felt cleansed, and finally I felt like I was on the right path again. God and I were good. This is what being born again is all about. This lasted about three months. The sparkle of a new church with new people who were so ready to welcome me faded quickly. There were things I had to hide from my small group in order to feel accepted. There were things I blatantly disagreed with that my pastor said and did. I found myself wanting to spend time with non-Christian people during the week and to spend my Sundays enjoying a long run and a brunch with my running club instead of going to church. I was training for my first marathon and I was very interested in a guy in the club who was a practicing non who was a non-practicing Catholic. I felt guilty about it. Pretty soon I stopped going to church altogether. Maybe the undertone of her article is also that there's this behavior code to evangelical Christianity that didn't work either. And I think that led into another part of the article that really resonated with me. But I guess what I'm realizing, maybe I'm contradicting myself, is, I mean, it sounds like her church wasn't able to have any engagement with either her doubts or her differences, or it sounds like there was just a clash there. Now, we, I guess we don't know like how much of that was her, how much is the church— well, yeah, and the very concept of, you know, we doubts are problems. Well, doubts about what? I doubt the integrity of this minister who, while the other minister is on vacation, tries to call a coup. I should be doubting his integrity. Right? So it depends on what we're doubting. That's your own personal doubting, story. That's not part of this article, right? No, it's my own personal story. Yeah, that happened. It's not part of the article. But... Or, or, you know, if there's things that she had to hide from her small group, 
what doubts are involved there? I doubt these people are able to engage with real life in a real way. I doubt that their theology, the way they see God, has is sufficiently integrated with real life for them to be able to engage in a compassionate way with who I am and what's going on in my life. I think those are wonderful things to doubt. I'd be, I'd be doubting, I'd be, I'd be going with those doubts, right? I would be allowing those doubts to take me out of a church like that. And I'm, you know, she hasn't given enough information. I'm, I'm, I'm creating a scenario, a potential scenario, based on what she's laid out. But if that were the accurate scenario, I would leave that church. If I had a friend that came to me and said, here's what's going on for me. I've got things happening in my life. I don't feel I can share them at church. The, the theology and the way that they view God and the way that I'm supposed to be as a human being as a result of those views of God are putting me in a position where I cannot um, express myself. I cannot share what's going on. I cannot seek uh, you know, input from other people. I would be shamed or whatever, and my my response would be, you know, irrespective of what's happening in your life, if you can't be open and communicative about that because of the way that people in your church view God, then the doubts you have about their theological positions seem to me to be very well founded. Because I never see Jesus doing that. You tax collector, get lost. You sinner of this type or that type, you're not worthy. Like we just don't see that happening in the Gospels. We don't see that happening in that way throughout the entire text. And so the, the, it's not just that, that, that things aren't reconciling, it's that people have actual beliefs and actual theologies that keep them bound to acting in certain ways. And if we don't doubt those things, we are simply corroborating them. And so, you know, the whole idea of doubt is, is it's entirely based on interpretation. And I think this is where the whole, you know, the doubt thing is often viewed as uh, or portrayed as um, an epistemological issue. So epistemology meaning something to do with knowledge. Doubt means you are doubting what is true, right? You don't have the knowledge. You don't have enough information. Therefore, you are doubting, and therefore the solution to your doubts is more and better information. Well, no, I may have all the information I need to tell me that this particular church that I'm affiliated with uh, has some very, very broken ways of viewing God, viewing humanity, or viewing the way the two are supposed to relate. And if those ways of, if any one of those three pieces um, is seen in a skewed light or is, uh, yeah, I guess being um, portrayed in a way that would disintegrate, that would separate and remove real lived life from from theology or Christian belief, then I have some immediate, immediate um, doubts and worries about um, the validity of those theological beliefs. And I think those are just bang on. Like, I'm not going to try to dispel my doubts. I'm going to act on my doubts. And I'm going to prioritize my doubts. And I'm going to get myself out of that, organi- that, that community.
Well, it's interesting. That's, that's essentially what she did. And then mm-hmm. to your point about Jesus and how Jesus responded to people, I thought this was this paragraph from her article was interesting. When you venture away from evangelicalism and discover your own path in life, you start to change. You recognize that you are responsible for your happiness and your choices, and that these things are not depending on your standing with God. You start to see people for who... So so that first part there, that sounds familiar to me from my experience in this environment, in the sense that hmm. you can only be happy if you have God, and the people that don't have God and that are happy, you know, they just don't know that they aren't happy. <laughs> <laughs> that would be the explanation given. And that, you know, everything has to be run through this very, very strict filter related to whether it's Christian or not. And and if it's not, then it can't ultimately be good. And then she ends this here, you start to see people for who they really are, not whether or not they are saved. And then you respect who they are, and you don't try to change them. Unless, of course, they ask for your help. I don't, and so I really like that last part too, because I think there's a lot of truth in that. And, and I think this is kind of wrapped up in this idea of, you know, getting people to heaven. And so mm-hmm. it's, uh, it, yes. it's, it, it's again, but it, it all comes back to this. Is it right? Is it wrong? Are they going to heaven? Are they go, where, what's going to happen to them? Do, you know, do they have the mm-hmm. right, this constant sense of urgency and, and kind of being the arbiters of so many things that, you know, it's not really our job. You know, it's amazing when you read that and you dissect it and exegete it because I I, uh, I kind of get what she's saying there, but I'm so far removed from some of that that... Yeah, some of the stuff, it's been a long time, but some of the stuff just still feels like yesterday to me. Wow. Well, you've, you've got a sense of it. And when you say it, like, I think you've explained it correctly. I, I agree with you. It's just that I can't, connect with that way of thinking any longer. And so it doesn't automatically come to me. You know, the first thing that comes to me when I think of something and then you respect who they are and you don't try to change them is, what are you even talking about? Who's trying to change anyone? What I'm doing as a Christian in the presence of anyone is I am, through the way I live my life, I am, uh, you know, at my best moments, I'm enjoying what it is to be in right relationship with myself through being in right relationship and right relationship with others through being in right relationship with God. It's that whole thing about loving God entirely and then loving myself rightly, loving others likewise. Yeah, see, the order is so different there. So, like, I'm thinking of some of my early, I was mentioning accounting and I was doing auditing at this big bank. And I remember Mm. this epiphany very similar to hers of, oh my gosh, I'm at happy hour. People are drinking alcohol. <laughs> I was drinking water, which was fine with me. But I remember having this, this moment of epiphany of like, I really like hanging out with these people. <laughs> and once I could get past all my years of training of like, you know, are they good or are they bad? Are they Christian? Are they non-Christian? Are they doing Christian things or non-Christian things? You know, which, which box... Which box do they go in? Because they got to make sure. Because if you if you put them in the wrong box and you're in the wrong box with them, I mean, it'll rub off on you. And before you know it, you'll be sliding off into some bad place too. And it was just like, wow, I had this exact thing. I 
I can remember it's clear. It's like, wow, yeah, I would rather be sitting at this happy hour talking about nothing or talking like really somewhat like with nothing to hide. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't, I'm not saying that we had these amazingly deep intellectual conversations, but at least with this particular group of people, there weren't a lot of pretenses. There were some, but I felt like the people that I was hanging out with that happy hour were much more real than the people in the church group that I was attending at the time. And something just seemed mm-hmm. really ironic about that, which is, mm-hmm. I feel like what she's calling out too. Yeah, I, I think you're right. It's it's incredible to me to think about that whole idea of assessing people on the basis of whether they're doing Christian things or whether they're not, you know, whether they're, yeah, I don't, I don't, I, I even have a hard time getting a hold of those categories anymore. They're just not there in my head. And so what this tells me and what you, when you communicate you know, your past experiences and, and the picture that you paint of evangelical Christianity through those experiences, what that tells me is evangelical Christianity in many ways is terribly broken. It is terribly misconceived. It is terribly underinformed. Um, you know, I'm, uh, the next seminar in my seminar series is, is, uh, kicking off tomorrow. And I sent out an email and I was a little apprehensive about this email. And I said, listen, so I think what some people are really interested in is just some some techniques for, for assessing the kind of original meaning of a biblical text. In other words, it's meaning to its in its original setting to its original audience and how we would go about doing that in a kind of really basic overview way. And, you know, I just thought the yawn factor on that is going to be massive. And I get an email back right away from somebody saying, wow, I'm so excited we're going to be doing this. <laughs> you know, and it wasn't much. It was just me writing down, well, okay, I thought to myself, what are my steps? What do I do? What, when I find that I'm questioning what a passage means, when I'm doubting, when I'm doubting, doubts are so helpful. They're so valuable. They fuel so much. If I didn't doubt anything, why on earth would I investigate it further? Maybe curiosity. Right. And maybe curiosity is a, I do think it's virtuous. It it can be negative too, but um, maybe some would say, yes, that should be the the kind of the engine or the fuel, if you like, the virtuous fuel that goes into my engine that gets me doing some of the stuff. And I say, you know, my life is too full of other things that I'm trying to do. What really gets me into my Bible in a very research mode, in a true research mode, is when I am presented with something that portrays God, portrays humanity, or portrays the relationship between the two in a way that either does not jive with what I understand, or particularly in a way that will detach the two, detach real life from biblical belief so that they're, they're kind of hanging free and not integrated at all, which in my mind means that my beliefs have no impact on my life. They don't mean anything. They don't speak into my life. And my life cannot, my experiences, my what it is for me to be as a human being in this world over time doesn't matter a rip for my beliefs. And this, as far as I'm concerned, is utterly false. But sometimes I'll be presented, you know, somebody in my church might say, oh yeah, I think, um, for example, I think God... God changes people's minds all the time. Just look what God did with uh, with Pharaoh. 
well, that was a great one. That was a great catalyst for me to jump in and start researching that piece. But I guess the point is that often doubts and even powerful doubts, even anxiety-provoking doubts, compel us to good change. They are an excellent fuel. Learn how to harness them, right? Too many doubts, too much doubts, overpowering doubt, maybe, right? I mean, I left Christianity for seven years. I was an agnostic for seven years because, not because I doubted, but because on the basis of my experience, I concluded that whether God was there or not, God sucked. I would have nothing to do with a type of God who had no power to deal with some of the things, you know, sexual abuse, what I consider to be murder, uh, power mongering in the church, spiritual abuse, these things. God has no ability to deal with or address these things. Then why bother? Right? But I think doubts, uh, as opposed to some massive evidence that's going to have a landslide effect of, of basically washing away your faith, eroding it completely, which if that's what you're at, where you're at, then that's where you're at, right? And that does, those things require checking in with, you know, we've got to go back in and look at that and say, okay, is it really the way I think it is? Has this landslide really occurred? And is there really nothing left there? And is the is the more truthful position an agnostic position? And I think what's coming out of the other thing I took out of this article is that atheism, or and my comment back to it was, atheism is a truth-seeking exercise. We must always be aware of that. So an atheistic tendency, just by the way it's stated, right? Atheism in North America is a minority position. It's a response. And as a minority position, it's already got some sort of a sense of the majority view. That's how it works. Atheists are people who said, I know a lot about theism. Not interested. It's false. Or I've tried it out. It didn't work. I'm looking for something better and I found it over here. Maybe you should try too. So I think that there's a deep correlation between religious doubts and any of those outcomes because they all lead towards more truth. Now, ultimately, I'm not still an agnostic. I'm not an atheist. I'm a Christian, right? But what went into the transition back to Christianity is not someone quelling my doubts, but more understanding and better understandings of God, myself, and the relationship between the two, and more and better experiences of God, myself, and the relationship between the two. And that, I think, is, is wholly missing. That whole perspective is wholly missing, whether from Barnett uh, and his Next Gen Project or from Craig Hazen's article, you know, the shared article with Barnett out of the Biola magazine. Sorry, I've, I've gone on a lot there. I guess that kind of got me kind of ramped up. But <laughs> How do you tie this in terms of moving in a direction? So the title of this article is How Becoming More Secular Brought Me Closer to Jesus. And, and I guess the parallel I hear is that you're saying that, you know, pursuing just because someone has pursued atheist, atheism doesn't mean they're on the wrong track per se. In other words, they're pursuing the truth as they understand it based on mm -hmm. however they're getting there. Mm -hmm. This article talks, the, the title is How Becoming More Secular Brought Me Closer to Jesus. 
I was wondering for you, I guess the part to me that was dissatisfying about the article is I hear her kind of unloading and shedding her evangelical past, which mm-hmm. I get and I can relate to. What I don't see in this, and I'm wondering if you see it, is how this brought her closer to Jesus. You know the thing I love when you ask me a question? I stumped and you? I'm tempted, <laughs> I, no, no, and I'm tempted to ask, do you want me to be honest? I know I don't have to answer, ask <laughs> yeah, that question. Yeah, you know what? You know what? Let's, let's dispense with the honesty and integrity on this podcast. Let's start lying to people. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, then I will. I will just give you my honest answer. I think it's just a vestigial answer. And by vestigial, yeah, what does that I mean? mean? <laughs> it's it's a vestige. It's something that's hanging on. It's like it's like a an ostrich's wings. They're vestigial. They really are wings, but they can't do what wings are meant to do. They're not meant to flap. They're meant to take you off the ground and help you fly. So the article doesn't also, doesn't deliver on the title. No, okay. no, not at all. Be, okay. Not at all. That's why at the very end when she says, Jesus, if you're listening, I'm becoming more secular in your name. I think it's just, there's still a mis- mishmash for her and, and she hasn't sorted that out. And, uh, you know, I would encourage somebody to say, okay, you know, on the one hand, it's okay to be there, right? It's okay to have this mishmash and think that, yeah, I'm getting closer to Jesus when in reality, based on what you said, you don't have a clue of who Jesus is because the only clue you've got, and it's a good one, like in terms of being a real clue, it sucks. Oh, it's her evangelical. It's whole, so it's her evangelical yeah. background. In other words, that's informed yeah. her understanding of Jesus. Yeah. So if you want to say to say Jesus means like it's one of the ways that I took that that one line that you read, and I thought I would have never understood what you you got out of it. The line was, and then you respect who they are, and you don't try to change them, unless of course they ask for your help. We can make Jesus into anything we want to. Right, And I think right now, the author of this article knows who Jesus can't be. Jesus can't be like the picture of the particular flavor of evangelicalism that I held. That flavor of evangelicalism has a picture of Jesus, and that just ain't right. And I would say to her, I'm with you. I'm completely with you on that one. What is Jesus like? Well, that's where we don't get yeah, okay, so... We don't we don't get that at all, and I don't think she's got that. And in particularly when she writes something, and then you respect who they are, yes, and you don't try to change them unless, of course, they ask for your help. Well, that depends on what you mean, right? Do I want to change people? Absolutely. Absolutely. I want to change every single human being on the face of the earth, but I don't want to go out there and do it by changing them or by suggesting that they must change, but by offering myself... By, by realizing my own life and my own flourishing in their presence that will allow people to say, you know what, there are certain things that go on in my life and certain ways that my life goes that are just simply dissatisfying. And so a level of satisfaction, if I can present that through how I live and who I am, and if I can also through conversation, regardless of whether somebody's asking me to change them or for, for help in changing, if they're asking, if they're in a conversation with me, I'm going to tell them, uh, you know, it's a conversation, let's say, about beliefs or about, um, or about how my life functions. It doesn't have to be about beliefs. How my life functions. My life functions in a relationship, uh, key to the functioning well of my life, let's say, if I can not put my words in the right order, is me being in a love relationship based on truth with God. 
What does that look like? What does that mean? How does that play out? Those are all questions, right? But if that's one of the insinuations, which I'm wondering if it is in her last sentence there, respecting them and don't try to change them. Well, I'm going to tell you things you may not believe. I'm going to tell you things that you may not think are right. I'm going to tell you things that will have an impact on you and you will perhaps have to walk away from. I'm not going to challenge you to be a Christian or not because I think that's ludicrous, right? What does that even mean? Be a Christian like most of evangelicalism tells you to be a Christian. I would walk away from that too. We, you and I are in the process, it seems to me, through this podcast, the big picture is clearing off the table from so much of the junk of evangelicalism so we can answer that question with a greater sense of accuracy both to the biblical text and effectiveness and and connection with our human lived experience of who is Jesus what does this mean what might the might the relationship be and who am i and how do how does this play into my life and my satisfaction as a result this is this is nowhere on the scope that i can see of evangelical concerns, right? Thinking about your own satisfaction, scandalous. But if you're in a love relationship, your satisfaction is is massive, right? It is a massive concern and it always is. And I don't always get the degree of satisfaction I want, even in my love relationships with my spouse or my children, my friends but it's still there, right? And I think the question of who Jesus is, is pretty massive. And I don't really understand how she's finished off here. I still talk to Jesus and God regularly. It's just how my mind thinks. And I would say that's the vestigial part. Since I was raised with the mantra of Colossians 3.17, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Well, the problem is which freaking Jesus are you talking about? Because hopefully you're not doing it all in the name of the Jesus of evangelicalism you've just abandoned, right? So this is where the hard work begins, right? There's a there's the hard emotional work of saying, holy crap, this evangelical perspective is bankrupt and I've got to let it go. And that's a huge, there's recognition, there's intellectual work. Yep, absolutely. But it's really a big sort of emotional cost. I'm paying out of my emotional coffers. Yeah, you're breaking potentially relationships or disappointing people you're having to stand up for yourself and say "Mm, i'm not i'm not going along with this tribe that i live in or grew up in or am presently in i'm i'm leaving the tribe exactly exactly but i think you start paying out of your intellectual coffers you start paying out of your your time and energy coffers when you have to start asking the question, and this is the point where I don't think people get to. In other words, when you start have to start asking the question, who, who do I think Jesus really is? Because if the evangelicals are right, if they've painted the right picture of Jesus, then nobody should be a Christian. If the type of Christianity that she's looking at there is the type of Christ, is, is really what Christianity is all about, you know, where you can't be yourself, you can't and I'm not saying that any way of being is right, but I am saying that being forthright about that in the context of a Christian community is one of those um, prerequisites of the community being Christian. I love what you said there, though, in terms of being very clear about who you think Jesus is. 
versus who he is not. So this article is predominantly about basically mm. how I don't know that it's so much about Jesus. It's more of just like this evangelical and and we might be I don't know painting with too broad of a brush of evangelical Christianity. I don't know that it's all mm. all 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 bad, but mm-hmm. anyway, she's her evangelical experiences. She's basically discarding them all. Mm-hmm. And then in the paragraph before the one you read, she says, I reject the idea that you can only find God in an evangelical Christian church setting or that you can only begin to understand God through the message of Jesus Christ. And then this this I thought was interesting. There are so many gaping holes in this theology, it's hard to know where to begin. And then that's it. Right. And I th- and so to your point, it's it's really easy to say, oh, yeah, there's all these huge problems and I don't know where to begin. And I'm going to like, I think it would have been really instructive to have shared four or five in that right there. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know where to begin, but here is the top five on my list. Right. And right. I don't know, maybe and that's it- coming in a future post or something. Um, but then she goes on too, and I'm curious, to, I'm curious what you would say to this. I'm skipping a little bit. She says, maybe just maybe the whole message of Jesus Christ was to eliminate the man-made theological barriers that enslave people to the idea that there's only one particular way to know God so that they could become the freely thinking, unique individuals God actually created them to be. I hope so. See, I'm tempted to ask that question, but I'm not going to ask it. You want me to be honest? No, of course you want me to be honest. Um, I think that that's a real mishmash. So in other words... um, is there only one very particular way to know God? That depends on what you mean. Yeah, you I think mean, I I feel like she's kind of going down the path of the the notion of there's only one way to eternal life or there's only one way to heaven and that's through this particular God. In other words, you can't come through Hinduism, you can't come through Islam. It has to be through Christianity. Right. And and I would say, well, the very uh contents of these particular religious views, except for Baha'i, would all affirm that there is only one way. Buddhism is not saying, hey, I'm optional. Hinduism is not saying, hey, I'm optional. Islam is not saying, I'm optional. Mix and match me as you will. None of these things are saying that. The only thing that's saying that, the only religion I know of, and I, I, I am hesitant to use the word religion, the only belief set or philosophy of belief is a better way of putting it, I think, um, because it doesn't really claim any access to the ultimate. It's more of an interface. Baha'i is an interface to various points of access to the ultimate. It claims in and of itself nothing about ultimacy other than that ultimacy can be accessed through any means you wish, right? And the only thing I remember from some of the uh, um, the, philosoph- the philosophy colloquiums that I attended on religion, uh, and you've got uh, people from, uh, I remember one in particular, we had uh, uh, Judaism, Islam, I don't know that we had Buddhism, we had Christianity represented, and, and various shades of many of these. And the only thing that every single person, there was unanimity fully and completely on was, there are irreducible elements to each one of these viewpoints. What does that mean? It simply means that there is no way. Yeah, and and they are um, they are irreducibly different in and so the idea behind Baha'i, which is 
these things are all saying the same thing. They're all various ways of getting to the same truth. None of the practitioners of any of those religions would agree with that. That's interesting because I feel like in today's day and age where it's like everything is okay, it's, and I felt like that was kind of an undercurrent of her article here is it's kind of like all paths lead to everywhere, like all paths can lead to the same place. I guess I would say I think her her, her article is is uh, a reaction against an extremely narrow-minded view of what Christianity is about and a, a, a problematic view. You know, I wouldn't throw everything out um, about evangelicalism, but... Right, and I think it was interesting you said there are different shades. I, yeah, just as there's like multiple shades to Christianity, I'd never really thought about that, that there are probably multiple shades to all these other religions too. Absolutely, yes. I think there are. Um, and maybe the same but, problems and dysfunctions with them then too. I have no idea, but it's just it's interesting to think about. Well, I don't know. I, something that I would wonder about it. I do think that there are there's more intellectual rigor, for example, in um, uh, Judaism, Christianity, and potentially Islam than in any of the other religions. Particularly because in those three religions, A, they're text-based, but B, so someone might say, well, yeah, but the Upanishad and all of these other writings, are these are texts. Yes, but the problem with, with the Hindu and the uh, uh, Buddhist uh, religions particularly is that there are more, quote-unquote, religious or officially sacred writings related to those religions than could be read in a person's lifetime. So you see the problem for intellectual investigation. It's impossible. Have you read this? Well, no. Have you read these other 5,000 things? No, I haven't read them. I've read, what, half of them. Well, how do you know then? Well, what, what is it that you base your views upon if there are too many sacred texts to wrap your hand around, your head around? And we don't have that problem with Judaism, Islam, in Christianity, we have uh, texts that are, you know, sizable, but but whatever, you could read them in a year easily. Any or all of them, you could read multiple times in a year, uh, if you're diligent. But, uh, yeah, I, I think that what I see here is someone who is reacting against evangelicalism and saying, no, this is a problem. And I think maybe doesn't even have uh, a full enough sense of what evangelicalism is. On the one hand, and then other your to your last point there, maybe the whole message was to eliminate the man-made theological barriers that enslave people to the idea that there's only one very particular way to know God. I think there are many, many, many ways of engaging with and relating with God, but each one of these religions claims to be exclusive. The only religion claiming not to be exclusive is not itself a religion, but as an interface, as a philosophical, if you will, um method of approaching religions in general to say that they're not without actually doing any work or giving any regard to the exclusive claims of any of them. And I think it would be, yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe a future post, Alison Lynch will talk about, you know, the, the gaping holes in Christian theology that, that she sees, right? And I think this would probably ultimately give us more of an insight into where she's come from than what Christianity is, right? Because it takes a long time to get a get a handle on, well, what 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 are the other options? Right? If there's not just one way of understanding Jesus, right? 
if there's many ways, if there are many seemingly legitimate ways or so yeah, I'll put seemingly in there. Then what are they? How would we go about doing that? So yeah, I don't know. Something new struck me there. Just in terms of what are the different ways to understand Jesus? It's it's like opening a big door. It's like mm-hmm. it, again, because because normally my thought process would be, well, no, what is what is the one right perspective? <laughs> right. And my tradition would say that they have it. Yeah, there's these others, but they're yes. really lame. But this one right here. We got the goods. Just, just, yes, just yes. sign up for what we got here, and you're good. And and it's interesting to think about. I mean, a, a point in closing is theology is derived from exegesis, right? So we read the Bible to then understand or theorize, make theories about, make theology about God. But part of the point is that, and part of the thing we've got to keep a pretty clear focus on as a Christian is, as a Christian, I already have a theory about God. I have a theology going into the whole thing. And that theology very often is not mapped out. It's not laid out. It's not even, it's not even, I, I couldn't even articulate it. It's like it. almost unconscious. Exactly. It's breathed into me through the environment that I'm in. So when she's talking about theology, I'm wondering, are you talking about the results of reading the Bible? Or are you aware of the preconceived notions you had, the biases and prejudices that count as theology that allow us to read the Bible in certain ways? In whatever particular tribe or setting you find yourself in. Yep, exactly. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Untangling Christianity podcast. A summary and resources for this episode are at our website, untanglingchristianity.com. If you'd like to join our private Facebook group or reach us by email, send your requests, questions, or even a simple hello to feedback at untanglingchristianity.com. Music on this podcast is provided by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com and is licensed under a Creative Commons license.